Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 5. And so as we dive into the Psalms this morning, many of us may be very familiar with them. You've been around the church, been around your Bible for a long time, and you know the Psalms has been a place of real encouragement, real growth. And so you're, you're maybe excited to dive into the Psalms. For some of us, though, the Psalms may be uh, somewhat difficult. The terrain may be a little bit difficult. There are, there are things about sort of the words that are used that you say, can we really pray this? Can we really pray this way? Can I, can I say these things to God in prayer or in Psalm? Wherever you may be, I hope that this summer as we go through the Psalms, that these would be deeply encouraging to you, that they would show you God's truth, that they would show all of us that God cares deeply about the way that we pray, the way that we praise Him, and that really the Psalms gives us the whole anatomy of the soul, as John Calvin put it. It gets into all the nitty-gritty of our, of our souls, and it exposes all of that to God and His truth in prayer. And so as we begin this series this summer, I hope that we see uh, in a new way, or maybe just again, the wonder of what God gives us in the Psalms, the truth that He offers us, to shape us, to form us, to transform us even into the image of our Savior, Jesus. And so would you stand this morning for the reading of God's word? We'll read Psalm chapter 5 together. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. And those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and thank you for your word. As we turn to it now, Lord, would you use it powerfully among us? Would we be shaped by it? Would we be confronted in our sin and assured of the forgiveness that you offer in the gospel? Would you teach us how we should live, how we should pray, even this morning? Lord, we ask this, asking that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> what do you do when you're afraid? Think back maybe to when you were a, a kid. Uh, I grew up in a home with a basement. I know we don't have a lot of basements here in Texas. But the, the darkness of a basement was, was somewhat terrifying. Running down a rickety wood staircase down to get ice cream out of the freezer was, was a challenging, terrifying thing. Now, I, our fears have probably progressed since then, but, but what do we do with our fears? Elon Musk, he's 
been making headlines recently. The, the tech mogul, Tesla owner, Twitter owner, says this about his own experience when he was young and afraid of the dark. When I was a little kid, I was really scared of the dark. But then I came to understand dark just means the absence of photons in a visible wavelength 400 to 700 nanometers. <laughs> then I thought, well, it's really silly to be afraid of a lack of photons. Then I wasn't afraid of the dark anymore after that. <laughs> now, if all of our fears could be dispatched so easily, we wouldn't need the Psalms. But we do. Our, our, our fears aren't simply dispatched, are they, by just changing our frame of reference, just saying, oh, it's, it's not that big a deal. Maybe some of us try that sometimes when somebody shares their, their struggle with us and we say, oh, it's not, that's not too big a deal. I've got this going on, right? That, that's, that's not really dealing with the problem. It's just sort of moving it over to a different category. What we need is something that we're actually offered in the Psalms. In the moments when we're afraid, and there are, there are plenty of things to be afraid about, right? We, we, we don't need maybe the whole list, but we know what it's like to be afraid of being alone, being isolated, fear of pain, fear of loss, fear of economic catastrophe, just the sort of total enormity of life that presses in on us and sort of builds up over time. It, it's easy to become overwhelmed and say, where, where's the way forward? What can I do in the midst of of all of this evil, all of this sin, all of these things that, that press in on us. And maybe we even know our lines. Maybe we're familiar enough with God's word to know that he's going to ask us to pray and even move in this psalm to rejoicing, but that doesn't seem accessible. It seems sort of out there. How do we take God's truth here, take our problems to him, and move towards the hope that he offers? That's what we'll look at together this morning. Through this psalm. In this psalm, we're given well-worn lines, a well-worn path of generations of believers before us who have prayed these words, who have sung these words in moments of trial and have found a hope. And so we together, too, will look at this and find the hope that God offers. First, we are invited to pray. Now, that might sound like the most obvious thing to hear at a church, 1130 on a Sunday morning, that you should pray. But that's where the psalm begins. It offers us this invitation to pray. We see this right from the beginning, this give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. This is a psalm. A psalm is, is part prayer, part psalm. And we see that invitation there, the introduction before verse 1, where it says to the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. This is an inspired prayer, an inspired song that was used by a choir with flute accompaniment, and it's a prayer of David. Now, we don't have the tune. Those weren't inspired in the text with the words, but we know that this is something that the church used in its prayer life, in its worship life. And we too are invited to do that through this psalm, to give ear, as verse 1 says, to my words, O Lord. It's a fairly direct way of talking to God, coming to him and saying, these are my words, would you hear them? Give ear, pay attention to these words. But it's also coming with groaning. Consider my, my groaning. Literally, that, that word is a sense of sort of muttering or mumbling, just sort of sighing. It's not an articulate prayer. It's simply the experience of someone who is experiencing something very profoundly difficult. Can't articulate it, but it is groaning. And David here, in this context, asks that God would consider that. That God would look on David's groaning. The text doesn't tell us exactly what the context is. Some have hypothesized that it is when Absalom has rebelled and is, is pressing in on David. We 
We'll see later that David has enemies. He's in, in real danger. There is wickedness around him, and he comes in the midst of this problem with his groaning and with his, his prayers to come to God and say this in verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry. He asks that God would be attentive to him, that God would listen. My king and my God. Now David goes to this, this declaration of what is true right here, even as he begins his prayer. My king and my God. He's not sort of saying this possessively, like, I've got this king, my God, they, he better sort of back me up and, and do what I ask. He's saying, this is who you are. You are, you are the king. You are the God who has is, who is called me, who has made me part of your people. He's declaring the covenant truth of who God is, this God who works redemption for his people. And he says, this is who you are, and I am, I am one of your people. For to you do I pray. And we're invited to, to pray like David, to pray in this way of actual hope and expectation for what God will do. David is not coming here with sort of a, I hope, God, maybe you'll, you'll listen to me. He's coming with confidence. He's coming with a, an assurance of being heard because he knows who this God is, my king and my God. You're going to hear me. I, I bring my groaning, my problems towards you. Verse 3 adds this confidence. In the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David begins his day with this posture of prayer in the morning. Now, there are other psalms that will talk about praying in the evening. There's no sort of extra holiness in terms of the, the morning prayer here. But there is a sense of his very posture as he begins his day being one of dependence on God. He comes and offers a sacrifice to him. He prepares something for, for God. Now, this isn't a, a sacrifice to appease God, to somehow say, hey, I, I gave you a sacrifice now. Would you answer my prayer? As we read these, these psalms this summer, we need to remember that the gospel isn't different in the Old Testament. The gospel isn't somehow different where the sacrifices were the thing that saved him. No, the sacrifices pointed to their need of a final savior. Remember in John it says, Abraham rejoices to see the day of Jesus where the sacrifice is finally finished. All that has been accomplished. And so David here isn't trying to somehow earn his salvation. But the sacrifice points to the fact that he is a sinner who needs God's grace and God's mercy. And that's the posture with which David comes to his God, one who he watches for. That last word in verse 3 is a word of anticipation, of expectation, of saying, I, I prayed, I've, I, I know that I am independent on God, he is my God and my king, and, and now I'm watching, sort of posting up and, and seeing what God will do. It's the same word that a lot of prophets in the Old Testament use. When they have made a prophecy and sort of said, this is what will happen, then they watch and wait for it to happen. And that's the posture David invites us to this morning. Now, earlier this, or last week, I was at a, a park in Bernie and had my girls, we were on the park, and, and if you've been at a park recently, there's this sort of phenomena, the kids are all in the middle, and the parents space out around the park, and, and on this particular day, they all spaced out just far enough so they couldn't really, you know, have to talk to each other, and so we were all around, around the park, and the kids are, are playing, and invariably, what happens? The parent pulls out their phone, and sort of is, is reading something and, and zoned out. And then from the playground, what happens? Dad! Dad! And some parent hasn't been looking. It was me. I was on my phone. And uh, one of my daughters is, is holding on to monkey bars, and she needs help. Um, and so what did she have to do? She had to call out. She had to say, Dad, Dad. Now, some of us, I think, 
operate as if that's how, how God operates. Um, you kind of have to yell a little bit louder. You need to sort of make a grand gesture. You have to say, Dad, Dad, it's desperate. Like this time you really need to, to help and come. It's not what we see in this psalm, is it? God is not sort of absent. God is not somehow distant. But God is attentive to David. God is attentive to David. God is not waiting for David to make some grand gesture or to finally do something so that then God will listen. No, God is attentive to David in his moment of need. And God is attentive to us in our moments of need. God is not far off, but he is, he is near, and we should watch with anticipation for what he will do. Maybe when you think about these psalms and you, you hear, yes, we're invited to pray, there's a little bit of guilt that comes up and you say, man, I, yeah, I don't pray as much as I did or as much as I should. Why don't we pray? Sometimes it's inconvenient, we're busy, there's things that sort of crowd in on our lives. But up underneath that, I think, is the reality that we often don't pray because we don't really believe that God is going to hear us. We don't believe that God is really going to answer us. That's why we need the Psalms. To show us that God does hear us. He is attentive to us. He will listen to us. I saw this in my own own life this week. I uh, was at a, a meeting with our, our presbytery uh, up in Austin, and the agenda for the meeting, I looked at the agenda and it said, oh, there's not a lot going on in this meeting. There wasn't a lot of business to do. Y you know what the meeting was to do for an hour? It was to pray for our missionaries. That was a lot going on. But there was a part of me that said, that's not real. We're not doing much. The Psalms, we need the Psalms again and again to remind us that, that prayer is, is powerful. That God hears our prayers. That God works through our prayers. God is attentive to us. We need the Psalms to shape us, to form us, to remind us that this is true. Because if we don't, that's when we start looking at all the alternatives that the, that the world throws up in front of us. When our problems, our fears, our anxieties come in, we look for all of those things to numb those fears. Whatever you struggle with, whether it, whatever it may be, those are the moments when we are anxious, when we are worried that we turn away from what is offered here in the Psalms, to any of those other ways we sort of self-medicate ourselves and fill that, that void that we're encountering, that anxiety that we are experiencing. We need the Psalms to shape us, to form us away from that towards God's truth. Church father Jerome in the 4th, 5th century said this about the Psalms, that in his day one heard the Psalms being sung in the field and in the gardens. And maybe that's a little bit of an idyllic picture of all of us going around the fields and the gardens singing the psalms. But what would it look like if you and I took these psalms and, and really sort of ingested them into our lives? That we knew them well. That these, and not simply talking about memorizing them, but that we would spend time in the psalms. Praying them to God. Praying God's truth back to him as it shapes our own hearts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, talking about the psalms, said this. That they impregnated the life of the early church. The early church found great life and hope. And all the fears, all the anxieties, all the worries of being a new church and the persecution and all of that that came through that, through the Psalms, through God's word, being prayed and sung, they found hope. They found encouragement. And so you and I too, as we read these Psalms, we can watch like David does for something to happen. To pray, to watch with expectation that God would do what he says. These aren't magic words that somehow are going to fix every problem in your life, but they are going to give a voice to those problems that moves us towards God and the hope that he 
offers. So even as we pray and we watch, we are also invited to, to know who this God is, this God that we come to worship, to pray, and to know more about. Verses 4 through 7 in this psalm gives us a picture of God's character as one of great mercy. The rest of this psalm will sort of oscillate back and forth between some things being said about God and then David looking at his enemies and then back to God and then the enemies, and we'll, we'll go back and forth through that. But here we see these enemies for the first time. Verse 4. David says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. David finds some hope, some confidence in going to God because of God's character. God is one who does not delight in wickedness, does not delight in the things that are evil. They are things that are displeasing to a holy God, a God who is, is righteous and holy and worthy, sees these things that are, are wicked and sinful, and he cannot dwell with them. This word dwell is, is significant. It's, it's not that God is somehow sort of just sort of in the presence of, but dwelling has a, a sense of relation, of connection, of being together, and, and that cannot be true of a holy God with the things that are evil. This evil and wickedness that David confronts is expanded on in verse 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Those who stand and say, I am boastful, really putting themselves before God, saying what I would have is, is more important, more, more worthy than the one who created all things. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord upholds, abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, these are some strong words. These are the parts of the Psalms where sometimes we say, how does that relate to, to me and, and my life? I remember reading the Psalms when I was, I was growing up, and I would get to, you know, a Psalm like this, you'd be reading it, and I'd, I'd start sort of racking my brain for, okay, who's the bloodthirsty person in my life? Um, and I, I was, you know, at this time, sheltered little kid in, in church, and and didn't really have anybody to, to list. And so it was kind of confusing. And so you kind of found like the worst person you could and sort of pigeonholed them in there. Um, and that wasn't, that, that's not a good sort of hermeneutical way of reading the Psalms. What do we do with this? Now there are real things that people in this room have experienced that fall right into this category. Things like abuse, being sinned against, come, and, and, and it is those who are wicked, those who are evil. That is what this is, is talking about. There are real things that we experience that, that measure up to what David is experiencing. And the Psalms give words to that, give a voice to that. At the same time, as we read through the Psalms, those who are evil and wicked are, are a category, too, of things that are in opposition to what God would have. When God there says that he hates all evildoers, he is talking about sort of a, a covenantal reality where he hates, in terms of a covenant action, all those who are opposed to what he is doing. And he pushes back against it. We also need to read the Psalms with sort of the, the Ephesians 6 mindset where it says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the spiritual powers. All of that is behind this, this evil. It's not simply your, your, your simple problems, but how those fit into the big picture of what is going on in the world. There's richness to what is said here because it reveals that God is the one who will stand against all of the evil and the wickedness and everything that we experience that has been done against us. All the sin must be dealt with. And so there's confidence that we can, we can have here. Now, what do we do with David, though? Is David somehow perfect? There's these evil people and, and, and evil realities, sin, all of that stuff. But, but what about David? Again, we need to remember the gospel when we're reading the Psalms. 
gospel doesn't change when we're reading the Psalms. Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David is entering in. David is dwelling where evil cannot dwell. How is that, that possible? This reality of dwelling is not some sort of, again, just sort of passive invite. It's bringing someone who doesn't belong in with hospitality, with welcome. How does this happen? Verse 7 answers it. The abundance of your steadfast love. Now that steadfast love is a, is a key theme throughout the Old Testament. We'll see it frequently in the Psalms. It comes from the word hesed, which is this idea of God's covenantal faithfulness. All that God does and promises is encapsulated in his steadfast love, his mercies, his compassion. Those are all words that scripture uses to translate this, this one word. And it's important to note that because this is where this whole psalm turns. It's because of God's steadfast love that David can come. In Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses, he reveals himself as a God who is compassionate. This, this same word, a God who is a God of steadfast love love and mercy. David knows he's a sinner. David's not reading these psalms and somehow saying, I'm, I'm righteous and everybody else is, is unrighteous. If you look at Psalm 143 in verse 2, David says this, no one living is righteous before you. But David knows that something has happened. The steadfast love of God has made it so that David can declare that he is, he is righteous. He's not saying he's perfect, but he's saying he is now following what is good. He's being led in the way of righteousness so that other people come and oppose him. And he says, no, I'm doing what God asks. God has given me righteousness. And so David enjoys this ability to enter the house of God. And so we, too, have that. We have God's great mercy in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our difficulties. We have this God who we can bow before because of his steadfast love, the mercy that is offered to us. And so we're asked to, to pray these words, to, to ask for, for help. I don't know if this is true of you, but asking for help is sometimes seen as the sort of the last resort, right? We try everything else, and then finally we ask somebody to help us. Saw something the other day about you know the interview question. What are your what's what's your greatest weakness? Terrible question. But when you're asked that question, there are strategies you're supposed to use to answer it. And one of the strategies is to say, well, I struggle with asking for help. And so in our mindset, we, we've taken asking for help and, and made it uh, like a, a weakness. But what does God's word say for us here? It's the only way you're going to dwell with the Lord. It's the only way you're actually going to find help and support is coming and asking for help to a God of mercy. There's a, a divine logic here in this psalm where, where we come and know that we aren't deserving of any of this, and yet, by God's steadfast love, we are brought in, and so we can come and ask for help. And we're asked to do that more and more as we read these psalms. Even as we ask for help, even as we see God's great mercy, we also see that God offers real justice. Verse 8 says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. David longs to be led in the way that God would have him go so that he is not sort of taken down by his enemies, whether by temptation or by their onslaught. He wants to be carried forward. He does not want to succumb to what is around him. And then he offers some strong words in verse 9 and 10. 
for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And then he declares in verse 10 with a strong declaration, guilty, make them bear their guilt, as it's translated here. Guilty, O God, let them fall on their own counsels. Those are, those are strong words. Those are the moments in the Psalms where sometimes we say, can, can I say that? Can, can, I, can I pray that to God? The answer is here we are told yes. But as we do that, as we look at the things in our world and in our life that are, are truly wrong, truly contrary to God's word and say that is guilty, we also need to remember that these same words, this same description in verse 9 is, is true of us in Romans 3. In Romans chapter 3, Paul pulls in this language and talks about those who have gone away from God, all of us, apart from Christ, and he says these same words, that their throat is an open grave. That we are, are, are lumped into this evil category apart from God saving us. And so even as we long for justice, even as we know that it is right and good that God would bring justice, and it's talking about actual punishment, actual hell, that, that is what undergirds this, this passage we do so knowing that there but by the grace of God go I. We need God's, God's mercy and his grace, even as we boldly ask for God to bring the justice that he promises. Remember the first Thanksgiving I was in the U.S., I was invited to someone's home I didn't know well in Georgia, and small town Georgia, and his family seemed to be their family tradition, watched Law and Order reruns on Thanksgiving. And not like one or two. I think we watched like a dozen Law & Order reruns over this, this long weekend. And I had never seen Law & Order before, but it was my, my introduction to the American justice system. And what, what happens in Law & Order? 60 minutes, it goes from crime committed to full justice, sentencing. Gets the whole thing. 60 minutes. There's a part of us that I think is hardwired to expect justice that way. We want it and we want it now. We want what is right and we want it right now. The Psalms don't always offer us that. It doesn't always offer us justice right now. But it does always offer us God's justice. Real justice. Lasting justice. Final justice when God declares what is right and what is wrong. And we depend on God's grace for that. But we need to remember that as we come into Psalms. In those moments when our lives don't look like a 60 minute law and order justice now moment. We need the Psalms. To remind us what is really true. To remind us that there is a God who does all things according to his will and all things right. To take our groaning, our words to him and say, Lord, I don't understand all of this, but would you make things right as you promise to? And the good news about this is this psalm, all these psalms together, give us the story of what is, what is really true. Because there are so many things that we fear. Chapman University has recently, in the last few years, published a, an index of Americans' fears. You know what the number one fear was last year? About 79% of Americans said they had this fear to some significant degree. It was fear of corrupt politicians. 80%, roughly. So that means both sides of the aisle are afraid of corrupt politicians. And, and that, that, that may be a, a valid fear. It may be a reflection of the evil in our world. All of those things... And yet what the Psalms do is it takes those fears and it moves them into a bigger story, a bigger context about who is really in control. My king and my God, the one who can make councils fall because of the abundance of transgressions he can cast out, the one who is finally and fully in control is the one that we, we go to. 
And so we can look for God in his, his justice and his goodness. The last thing this psalm shows us, though, is that we are able to rejoice. Now, if you're following your bulletin, you'll know that we, we went from invite, invite to able. Another invitation to rejoice would have been more symmetrical. But this is more than an invitation. This is something that we're actually able to do in and through the gospel. Verse 11 says this, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. Now those are, those are big words. What does David do? He moves from the individual up till this point in the psalm. He's been talking about me and I. Now it's, it's all of us together. We can rejoice taking refuge in God. Now, does this mean all of our problems are going to go away simply by reading this psalm? No, it does not. Does it mean that together we can look to the refuge that God offers and more and more as the years and months go by rejoice in God? Yes, it does. We can rejoice together. Why? Because he has spread protection over them. And those who love your name. If you're familiar with the, the King James version of this, this psalm, it says that God compasseth around us, surrounds us with his love and his care. The only other place in scripture where that word of surrounding is used is of David's life when he is confronted with Absalom. And Absalom is surrounding him and, and closing in on him. David feels alone. David's afraid. David's anxious. He's concerned for his son. He's concerned for the kingdom. He's concerned for what all this means for God's covenant and his promises and all that has been promised to David. And yet, what does David know deep down? That even though Absalom surrounds him, who is actually surrounding him? His God. The one who is a shield about him. If this is true for David, then, then how much more true is it for you and I in and through Jesus? The one who has delivered us. The one who has definitively defeated death and our fears and has declared that he is the one who is in control, our king, our God. Now, we might know this. We might know these truths. We've heard them before. But, but how do we begin to, to live them into our lives? When I was a junior in high school, my mom signed me up for a, a drama camp. And it was a week-long camp, and so we had to do these various plays, these, these skits in, during the week, and for some reason I got cast as Macbeth in a scene of Shakespeare. can't remember which scene it was, but I knew that I was handed a script one night, and the next day I needed to have these lines down. Now, I did not accomplish that task. The next day I was bumbling through it. It didn't, it was kind of, it was a mess. Um, long story short, it was a mess. Sometimes that's how reading the Psalms can see. We, we see this. We say, I cry out to God. I, I know he'll bring justice, and I know I can rejoice, but, but all of those words kind of feel like a jumble in our life. We know our lines. We know what we're supposed to say, but maybe we're not quite there yet, so to speak. Well, the good news is that's why we have the Psalms, to begin shaping us and forming us as we come to these words again and again to see what is really true, to learn our lines better, as it were, so that when those moments come, not if, but when those moments of trial come, we can actually say with the psalmist, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Doesn't mean we're going to perfectly experience that. 
doesn't mean there won't still be trials, but it does mean that our, our lines are set, that the hope that we have is there. And the hope is ultimately in Jesus, what he has done and accomplished. The good news about you and I, when we pray, we join in with what Jesus is already doing. 1 John 2, 1 says that he is our advocate. He is our intercessor, the one who is praying for us. As we groan, as we cry, we are joining in with what Jesus is doing for us, even now in his resurrected body, interceding for us at the right hand. That is good news. We join those cries with our own cries, our own prayers, so that we move towards the joy that God offers us. Together. We, we, this morning, even as we confessed our sins, we confessed that we are people who need something. Together, corporately, we did that. And this psalm asks us all to, also then to rejoice in the refuge and the answer to those sins, those trials. And it's Jesus, his gospel, his truth, his hope, what he is doing now, what he will do finally and completely in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father, we do come and we pray to you. We pray in the name of Jesus that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we, we pray that you would take what is true in this psalm and, and work it deep into our hearts, that we would be people who are, are joyful. Not in a simplistic way, but in a way that has walked through very difficult things and has found that your word is enough, your truth is enough, your gospel hope is real. Lord, would you make that more and more true in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen.